My name is Wes, and I have the privilege of serving on the pastoral team here at Ebenezer, and it's a joy to, to be on staff here, whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online, um, it is great to be together. We are going to be continuing on in our series in the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, starting at verse 12 of chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, the verses will be up on the screen as well, but if you have your Bible, please feel free to follow along. I'm going to read our text for this morning. And then I'm going to pray. Uh, if you'd pray for my voice, I'm at the tail end of a, a very minor cold here, um, and it held up for first service, so I'm hopeful it'll hold up for this one too. But that being said, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here with us and among us. God, we acknowledge that you are here and we desire as a community to lean in right now and to listen to what you would want to say to us, God, through your word. We thank you, Father, that the scriptures are holy and that they are inspired of your spirit. And so we come eager to learn, eager to listen, and eager to obey what your spirit would want to say to us. I confess, God, that um, I am a, just a vessel, and I give myself to you that you may use. I pray that anything that is of your spirit, God, that it would land in good soil and bear the fruit you desire it to. I ask that anything that is not of you and it's just of me, that thou would fall to the side and bear no fruit. I ask, Lord, that we would draw near to you and that we would see you rightly, Jesus, and be drawn into deeper love and deeper obedience to you this morning. And I ask this all for your honor and glory in your name. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. This is what the Apostle Paul calls for his young apprentice Timothy to do. Up until this point in the letter, Paul has been very straightforward in why he is writing this letter to Timothy and what Timothy needs to do. In chapter 1, he reminds Timothy that he urged him to stay in Ephesus so that he could command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer. In chapter 2, he tells Timothy that men and women are distinct yet equal and that they each need to worship God in biblically faithful and culturally appropriate ways. And in chapter 3, he says that leaders in God's church need to be above reproach in everything. They must be people of sound and godly character. That's how everything else works. 
So the first half of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy is very business-focused. He's got points he needs Timothy to know, and he is very straight to the point about that. He is, he's not waxing poetically. He's getting right down to business. And it's as if he's saying, Tim, this is what you need to do to lead the church. This is how stuff works. And he makes that a point of emphasis. And while the tone and the rhetoric of the opening chapters of this book are very business-minded, professional, if you will, you might say that this text that we're about to read, it shifts from a professional focus to more of a personal one. Because as much as this is a letter addressing the church and how the church needs to operate and function, Paul still knows who's on the other end of this letter. He still knows that it's Timothy that he's primarily addressing and that he's writing this to his young apprentice and protege. Some have even compared Paul and Timothy's relationship to that like a father and a son. And so Paul moves from a more business, professional focus to a more personal focus and a call for Timothy to be encouraged and strengthened and focused as he undertakes his task. And what he calls for Timothy to do is to watch his life and his doctrine closely. And for our time this morning, we are going to explore those two ideas. What does it mean to watch our lives and to watch our doctrine closely? And we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at that phrase, watch your life, and what that means. But firstly, what does it mean to watch your doctrine closely? The word doctrine here means instruction or precepts, or information, or a body, a collection of teaching. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. That phrase, yoke, is actually a metaphor of what rabbis would do. They would say, take my yoke upon you, meaning take my teaching Take my body of collected understanding about the Torah, about the scriptures. Take on my attitude, my character, my disposition. That was what the yoke meant. And this is what he says, take my teachings, take my way of life, my attitude, my disposition towards the world. These are to be embodied in your life. And Paul says elsewhere in the book of Ephesians that through the gifts of the leadership given by God's Spirit to the church, he writes this in Ephesians 4.14, he says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. That's our word there again. By every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. You can remember that it was the false teaching or the incorrect doctrine that was the starting point of this letter. This is why Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus and commanded him, you need to stay there and set this thing straight. False teaching has crept into the church and you need to command them not to speak any longer and you need to correct this. He talks about that a little bit more in the passage we read last week in verse 3, where in 1 Timothy 4 verse 3 it says this, they forbid, right? These are the false teachers that Paul is referring to. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
Pastor Layton shared last week how these were likely a group of people called the Gnostics. And basically what these people incorrectly believed was that anything that was spiritual about you, the immaterial, the the non-physical part of you, that part of you, that was what was good and pure and holy. But anything physical, anything material, your body, your desires, those kinds of things, those things were all bad and they needed to be denied. Now this is a false teaching because Jesus never taught that. He taught that the body was good. It was created by God and that we need to submit our bodies to God unto him, right? And so Paul is trying to clarify this false teaching and put it to a stop. He writes this in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 2. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual, to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, they're based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You see, throughout the New Testament, there is a very clear body of teaching, starting with the teachings and the commands of Jesus, and then building out from there based on the apostles. And it's these things that are the doctrines, the the collected body of teaching that Timothy needs to watch over and he needs to engage with. He needs to pay close attention to his doctrine. And so we need to watch our doctrine closely. That is vitally important. But that isn't the only thing that Paul said to do. Paul didn't just tell Timothy, hey, watch your doctrine closely. He also said, watch your life closely. And this is where we are going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. We need to watch our lives closely. It was in the midst and the swirl of everything that has happened over the last three years that there was a very heartbreaking and discouraging story that was uncovered in the early months of 2021. In the spring of 2020, Rabbi Zacharias, a world-famous apologist and Christian theologian, passed away in his early 70s. Zacharias led an international ministry Uh, for several decades, sharing the gospel of Jesus and providing a rational defense of the Christian faith and a Christian worldview in some of the most secular universities and cities in the world. After his death in the spring, however, numerous allegations of sexual assault and misconduct were brought forward to his ministry organization. And this led to a a long-term investigation by an outside law firm that spanned several months to find that not only were these allegations true, but they were actually far more reaching than they had originally thought. Zacharias's actions and abuse of women spanned multiple years and several countries. I won't go into the explicit details of the article here. However, this clip from a Christianity Today article summarized things well. When he died in 2020, he was praised for his faithful witness, his commitment to the truth, and his personal integrity. It is now clear off the stage, the man so long admired by Christians around the world, abused numerous women, 
and manipulated those around him to turn a blind eye. I bring up this tragic story, and it is a very tragic story, because it is a sober reminder to us that knowing the truth and having good doctrine is not enough. It's not enough. Having a correct theological system or being a person of sound doctrine is not enough. Zacharias was one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers I have ever heard in my life. He had good doctrine. He watched his doctrine closely. What he did not do, however, was watch his life closely. He did not pay attention to Paul's second command to watch over his life. Having good doctrine is important, but it's not enough. It's not enough. We need to watch our lives closely as well. Jesus is teaching in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, and he says this to these followers. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, not, and do not do what I say? Did you catch that? They are theologically correct. He is the Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Like they're, they're, doing the, they're saying the right things. They have the right doctrine, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? The problem is not their theology. The problem is their obedience. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, there's our key, and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. It is not good enough to have good doctrine any more than it's good enough to just hear the words of Jesus and don't obey them. That's not how this works. We don't just need to hear Jesus' words. We need to obey them. We need to internalize them. We need to put flesh and blood to them. And Paul is encouraging and he is calling and he is even warning Timothy, watch your life. End your doctrine closely. Pay attention to the teachings and the commands of Jesus and if you are really practicing them or not. And in our passage, Paul outlines four different ways that he wants Timothy to watch his life. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing this morning. So the first area that Paul commands Timothy to watch his life in is in his example. In his example, verse 12, he writes this, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, and in purity. Set an example. Now, firstly, on that word young there. Most commentators discern that based on how this, verse, how this word is used elsewhere, but also based on the chronology of Timothy's life, 
They estimate that Timothy at this point was probably in his late 20s or his early 30s. Now, I don't know if that was the reason why Leighton asked me to, to speak on this message in particular. Perhaps, I don't know. But I'm right in that ballpark. I'm 33 years old. So I'm, I'm right in that scope of what, uh, Timothy, of what Paul is referring to here. And if I'm being completely honest with you, that phrase, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, it, it's honestly been a bit of a foreign concept to me here at Ebenezer. I've been on the staff team now for two years. The first part of that was in a part-time capacity, and now the latter half has been more full-time. And over the two years that myself and my family, we've been here, it has been just a tremendous blessing. We have been encouraged and loved, and I have in no way, shape, or form felt looked down upon or any way. I have honestly only been encouraged, and so sincerely, I want to say thank you for that. But the more that I look at this passage, the more I realize this is far less to do with age. It has much more to do with being an example. Paul is calling Timothy. Don't be concerned about what people think about that. Right? He needs to put his focus on being an example. It's as if he's saying, Tim, you can't get caught up in what people think or what they don't think about you. And how old you are or how old you're not. Don't concentrate on that. Focus your efforts, focus your energy on being an example to the body. And this was Paul's approach to his ministry as well. Everywhere he went, he sought to be an example to the church that people could follow. Philippians 4 verse 9 says it this way. Paul writing, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Wow. <laughs> what a statement, right? What a statement from Paul. Hey, he's like, hey guys, I'm just wrapping up the letter here. Um, you know, anything you've learned from me, anything you've received from me, anything you've seen me do, yeah, just do that. And the God of peace will be with you. Like, what? <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, it can come across a little bit arrogant at first glance, right? Like, Jeez, anything this guy did? Just do that? Wow, okay. Jeez, that sets the bar pretty high. <laughs> but it can come across as arrogant at first glance, but in reality, it's not. Paul is not being arrogant or bragging. What he is saying to the church is he's saying, my life, you guys, is an example. And in the immediate context of the book of Philippians, the passage right before is talking about how do you have peace in the midst of anxiety. And Paul outlines these incredibly powerful, important steps that we can take when we are in the midst of anxiety to experience the peace of God. It's as if he's saying to them, he's saying, I know what it's like to be in crazy, hard, challenging circumstances. Do what I do, and you will experience the peace of God. He is not arrogant. He loves this church, he loves these people, and he's trying to say, do what I'm doing because this is an example for you of how you can have peace. Or he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Christ calls us to follow his example, correct? Well, part of that example is investing into others in a process called discipleship. 
A disciple is someone who takes on the character, the ways, and the mission of Jesus and then invests that into others. This is not the calling of pastors or teachers or paid ministry professionals. This is the calling of the church, is to make disciples of Jesus. Anyone who calls on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, if you are now a disciple, you are now a disciple maker. That's how this works. It is baked into the process of discipleship. You cannot short circuit that. It's not how it works. If you are a disciple, you are a disciple maker. That's how this goes. And with that, you are now an example. That's how this works. You are called to be an example of Jesus Christ as a follower of him. And so that leads me to a set of questions that I want to ask us today. And that is simply this. We're going to go through them one by one. But the first question is, is my life worth imitating as an example? Is my life worth being imitated as an example? Now, I think as many of us reflect on that question, most of us probably feel like the answer is no, if I'm just taking a guess. We can all too very quickly disqualify ourselves from being an example because we know ourselves, right? We know our failures, and we know our shortcomings. We echo what the hymn writer said where he wrote, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we sing those songs and we think to ourselves, Yeah, I am a bit prone to wander. I am a bit prone to leave the God I love. How, how, can I, how could I honestly be an example? I'm, I have failed and I have, I have screwed up so many times. How can I be an example? But you see, it's here that I want to remind you that the Lord does not call the healthy to repent. He calls the sick. He calls those who understand their need for him to repent and to trust in him. He doesn't say to the crowds, come to me, you who have your lives perfectly figured out and don't have any worries or concerns. Is that what he says? Is that who he calls? No. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He calls the weary and the stressed and the burdened and the fatigued, and he says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And if Jesus calls you to him, you can better believe that he's going to use you as an example. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6 say this, Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Our competence comes from God. God doesn't always call the qualified or the perfectly competent, but he will always qualify the called. He will always qualify those he calls. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is calling the Apostle Peter for the first time. And Peter, if you know the story, he's been a fisherman all his life. And he is out fishing all night long. 
and he gets nothing. <laughs> He's just, he just fails. And on the morning, he, he comes up to the shore, and Jesus is there teaching people on the, at the crowd. And so Jesus steps into his boat in order to, you know, project his voice a little bit louder. And then after he's finished teaching, he looks to Peter and he says, Peter, you know, why don't you, why don't you throw the boat out again and, and toss your net out again, but do it on the other side this time. And Peter, like, begrudgingly, is like, Lord, we've been out there all night and we didn't catch anything. But since you said it, okay. <laughs> and, he just, and he begrudgingly obeys, right? And he tosses the net onto the other side. And what does it say? The nets began to fill, so, with up, fill up with so much fish that the nets began to break. Just this incredible moment of Jesus revealing himself to Peter. And Peter responds in that moment, and he looks at Jesus, and he, he falls on his face, and he pushes him away. He says, Lord, get away from me. I don't, like, I am so unworthy. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Like, don't, like, stay six feet back, <laughs> right? Like, I don't want to, like, I can't get anywhere near. I am so unworthy. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Or he, in the Gospel of Matthew, it records it this way. He says, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus doesn't call the qualified. Peter's a fisherman, and he allows you one at that, it seems. He does not always call the qualified or the competent, but he always qualifies the called. He makes Peter qualified. He makes Peter competent to do what he calls him to do. And that's something we have to remember. So if you're sitting there and you're going like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm not worthy to be an example of Jesus. Well, join the club. None of us are. That's not the point. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It doesn't matter if you don't feel competent or if you don't feel qualified or if you don't feel worthy of being an example. That's got nothing to do with it. It has everything to do if you feel called. Has God called you to himself? Because if he has, then he's going to use you to be an example. It doesn't matter what your feelings are. It matters what he's called you to. Let's go on to the second area that Paul tells Timothy he needs to watch his life in. And he says this, he needs to watch his life in the area of his gifting. Verses 13 and 14. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Paul instructs Timothy that he needs to be devoted to growing in the area of his gifting. All of us, when we surrender our lives to God, we are given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit that God intends for us to use in such a way that it builds up our own personal faith, but that it also builds up and blesses the body of Christ around us. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work, right? So even though our gifts will vary and be different, it is the same Holy Spirit distributing all of them. They are from God, 
Romans 12 says it this way. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Whatever gift we have received from the Holy Spirit, we need to use it. That's the point. And so my question, therefore, is how am I using and growing in the gifts that God has given to me? How am I using and growing in the gifts God has given me? Just because you are gifted in something doesn't mean you don't need to practice it. Right? If you're gifted in one area, it doesn't mean like, ah, oh, I know how to do that, <laughs> whatever, and you can just shrug it off. No, you actually need to practice it. You actually have to exercise that gift, right? It's more, it's, spiritual gifts are kind of like a muscle. The more that you use it, the more familiar you become with it and the stronger it becomes as you begin to function in how God has wired you. And what's so awesome is when we discover our gifts, when we discover how God has wired us, we begin to step into that more and more, and we begin to realize, wow, God's using me in this way, and he's ministering to other people, and it's so encouraging, and it builds you up in your faith, and that actually works to safeguard and protect you and to watch your life. Right? As you function in your gifting, you start experiencing the blessing of being a servant, and you go, man, this is so life-giving and amazing. Like, why do I want to go elsewhere? It actually works to guard your life against the wrong paths. That's the second area. The third area that Paul tells Timothy to watch his life in is in his devotion. Verse 15 of our passage. Be diligent. In these matters, give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Now, when Paul says these matters, he's referring to the passage that we just looked at, but also the passage that we looked at last week that Pastor Layton shared on. And specifically, I want to touch again on verse 7 of chapter 4, where it says this, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. If ever there was a time where we needed to hear a word, have nothing to do with godless myths, it would be in the age of the internet. (laughs) Okay, that got me nothing here. If ever there was a time where we need to hear a word saying, have nothing to do with godless myths, conspiracy theories, all kinds of crazy, nonsensical ideas that have nothing to do with God. It is now, in the age of the internet, have nothing to do with that, Paul says. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Don't give your time and your energy into all these things that are nothing but a distraction, right? It is crazy and scary how fast you can go down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos and Google searches and and social media posts, and it's just this massive swirl. You click on this one thing, you're like, oh, that's interesting. What about that? And then you watch the end of it. Whoa, there's another video. It's just popping up now. And then I started looking down this thing, and the next thing you know, you've wasted half an hour. And what did it profit you? Nothing. 
Did you grow closer to the Lord? No. Did you become more like Jesus? No. I, I heard some crazy things about some other country. So what? Have nothing to do with godless myths. Stop it. Right? This is what Paul says. Have nothing to do with this. Right? Because the question ends up being, what are you giving yourself wholly to? What are you giving yourself wholly to? Paul says you need to give yourself wholly to the Lord. And that leads us to my third question. What are you wholly giving yourself to right now? What are you wholly giving yourself to right now? We are all going to give ourselves wholly to someone or to something. This can be our family. It can be our work, a relationship, a hobby, whatever it is. You're going to give yourself wholly to someone or to something. And whatever you give yourself to wholly, you will become like what that is, for better or for worse. Sometimes we think of our worship and we think about the three or four songs in a set list at the beginning of our time together. Like, oh, we're going to engage in worship. That's an expression of worship. It is not the sum total of what worship is. It's an important expression, but it is not the total. This is not the totality. Romans 12 says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. We don't worship through three songs on a Sunday morning. We worship through all of our lives, 24-7, 365. All of our lives are to be a living sacrifice, honoring and glorifying and lifting up the name of Jesus and committing ourselves to his kingdom and his purposes. That is what worship is. And whatever you give yourself wholly to, that is what you are worshiping. Whatever you wholly give yourself to, that is the object of your worship. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 135. He says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We become like what we worship, period. Whatever it is you worship, you will give yourself wholly to that thing or to that person, whatever it is. That's how worship works. And you can give yourself wholly to anything, to a person, to a cause, to a money, to sex, to whatever it might be. Whatever you give yourself wholly to, that is what you are worshiping. And you will become like that. You will become like that. And so that's why Paul is so, so eager for, for Timothy. Give yourself wholly to God. Give yourself wholly to these things. Train yourself to be godly. Because if you give yourself wholly to God, you will become godly. That's how this works. We become like what we worship. And then the last area that Paul tells Timothy he needs to watch his life in is in the area of his perseverance. Verse 16, he writes this, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
To persevere means to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty, opposition, or discouragement. You just refuse to quit. That is what perseverance means. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good perseverance story. I grew up, I was a big movie buff as a kid. I loved watching movies. I still love watching movies. I have far less time to do that today as a dad of three little kids. Um, but I still love watching movies. And I love watching movies where it's the theme of perseverance, right? Right, that person, whoever it is, they, they come onto the scene. They're the main character. They're the protagonist. And, and they, are, they have this incredible obstacle that they have to overcome. Right, whatever it is, whatever that looks like, there's all kinds of adversity and there's all kinds of trials and there's all kinds of like injustices done against them and somebody stabs them in the back and it's just like, oh my goodness, they have so much to overcome and you're just, you're moved by the story and you, you enter into their pain and their suffering and you're just like, come on, man, like don't quit. Like I know this sucks, but you gotta keep, like I, maybe, that's, maybe that's just me. <laughs> I, I get into movies where they're, you enter into the story of the character and you're just longing for them to overcome that obstacle and then and then there's the payoff right they get to the end of the movie and they they reach the goal or they win the game or whatever it is there's this moment of vindication and you're like yes they didn't quit this is awesome they made it they finished it it's like yes this is so good oh and you love it right there's something about a persevering story that just it fills your soul with hope and it goes yes we that's so good we love those stories of perseverance until until it's no longer us sitting on the sidelines watching a story all of a sudden you are now the protagonist you are now the person in the story and you're the one who has to persevere you're the one who has to overcome you're the one who is faced with obstacles and challenges and injustices. And all of a sudden, it feels a lot different, right? All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I don't know if I want this. <laughs> like, I, I loved it when so-and-so was overcoming. It was like, yes, keep going. That's so great. Now I have to do it? Ooh, I'm, I'm okay. I, can, can I sit? Th like, we love stories of perseverance but sometimes we don't like it when we're now in the story. But yet that's exactly what the scriptures call us to. James chapter 1 verse 12 writes this. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Or Hebrews 10.36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Right? Perseverance is just baked into the equation of following Jesus. It just is. It's not like he put it in the fine print at the bottom of the contract to like sneak it in there. No. He said, you will suffer. You will go through trials. This is how it works. He's being completely upfront and transparent about that. This is baked into the equation. He writes this, he speaks in the book of Revelation to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 where he says this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus calls us to persevere. He just does. We don't have a choice in the matter. We are called to persevere. Now, I'm not a doomsday kind of person. I'm not a glass half empty kind of guy. That's not how I am. I'm typically quite positive. I'm a glass half full. I'm, I'm a positive chap. I feel fine about being an eternal optimist because I just am, right? Jesus Christ rose from the dead and I read the end of the story, right? I read the end of the story. He, he ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. There's no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. All of those things are passed away. I am an eternal optimist. I just am, and I say that unashamedly. However, I've also read the whole story, and before that day shows up, before that day of beauty and healing and restoration of all things, before that day comes, there's a lot of hard days. There's a lot of painful days. There are a lot of days that require perseverance. And that's just is what it is. Jesus, Jesus doesn't try to beat around the bush with that. He knew he would need to persevere. And that's why he calls his followers to that. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. In the, like, it's, he's not... He's not sugarcoating it. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you and me if you are a child of God. The spirit of him who has defeated death lives inside of you, but you still need to persevere. We are called to it, and we cannot disregard it. We all must persevere. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and they can get set up for our closing song. Paul knew that Timothy would face hard days. He knew that he would face hard times. And this is why he told him, you need to watch your life and your doctrine closely. And this is why he, he talks about in this passage, you need to watch and pay attention to your example. You need to watch and pay attention to your gifting. You need to watch and pay attention to your devotion. And you need to watch and pay attention to your perseverance. We all need to persevere, and we all need to watch our life and doctrine closely. And as the, the worship team sets up for the closing song, um, we have brothers and sisters uh, in Turkey and Syria right now who need to persevere. They have been faced with an incredible trial, an incredible heartache. And as a church body, we want to take up an offering right now to bless and to serve and to encourage those who are going through situations and circumstances that are just are, are horrific and horrible. And so as the worship team leads us in our closing song, our ushers are going to pass around our, our offering plates again. And this money is going to go specifically towards relief funds in Turkey and in Syria. We have organizations and connections in both of those countries that we as a church and a denomination are a part of. And so 100% of the money that is taken up in this offering is going to go directly to those sources to use as they best see fit. We have a lot of trust in those, uh, in those contacts over there. So I would encourage you, as the plate is coming around, feel free to give. All of that is going to go towards that, and I'll invite the team to lead us in our closing song. Let me close with the benediction, and I just invite you to receive the truth of God over you.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Blessings to you. We hope you have a wonderful uh, Sunday. I want to remind all of you as well in second service, um, we have a time in between the services, between first and second, where we do coffee and cinnamon buns. It's a great way to connect and and to uh, hang out with other people. So I invite you to that uh, for next Sunday. Hope you have an amazing rest of your day and a great week. God bless you.